welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about what we do on a daily basis at chicagojustice.org or get involved at cjpnation.org. Welcome to the first episode of season two. We plan on having a new episode drop every Wednesday from here on out. We got some great interviews already recorded and hopefully more to be added. Today, we're discussing the CPD's use of ShotSpotter, a controversial acoustic-based technology that supposedly alerts police to gunfire. I say controversial because the technology has never been independently validated. And you go anywhere from Vice to the Tribune to the New York Times to papers all over the country, you'll see the problems with ShotSpotter. Their rate of, it's believed their rate of false positives is huge. They say it's very, very low, like in single digits, two, three, four percent, but that is untrue. There have been alleged to have changed readings from fireworks or car backfires to gunshots or multiple gunshots to back up police stories and critical incidents that went bad for the police. We'll be talking to Alejandro Ruiz Asparza from the Cancel Shot Spotter Coalition and Jonathan Manis, an attorney of the MacArthur Justice Center's Illinois office, where his practice focuses on civil rights violations that flow from surveillance, police technologies, mass incarceration, and national security policies. I will be back with you after the conversation. All right, welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. Thank you both so much for jumping on. Today we have Alejandro Ruiz Esparza, who's a representative from the Lucy Parsons Lab in Chicago, and Jonathan Manis, who's an attorney with the MacArthur Justice Center in the Illinois office where he practices, or his practice focuses on civil rights violations that, that flow from surveillance, police technologies, mass incarceration, and national security policies. Okay, Jonathan, for my audience who does not know, what is ShotSpotter? What is it? How does it work and what does it purport to do? Yeah, for sure. So ShotSpotter, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited about this conversation, first of all. Um, and so what's ShotSpotter? So ShotSpotter is a uh, surveillance technology that um, uh, uh, purports to uh, detect the sound of uh, gunshots and then send the location of gunfire out to police departments um, uh, where police are dispatched immediately in response. And uh, the way the system works is that uh, neighborhoods are wired up with um, microphones that are always listening and that record about 30 hours of audio at a time. And any kind of loud noise uh, that is detected by the microphone is sent back to ShotSpotter's headquarters. And then they have some secret algorithms that they say are meant to classify the sound and locate it. Um, and they have some call center staff that send out the alerts to actually send out the alerts to um, police and make the call. So uh, uh, we've done some, we're going to get into this, I'm sure, but there are a lot of questions about the system's reliability and whether it um, uh, does anything to make people safer. Why, since I think you're more or less closer to the community than both Jonathan and I, why are communities upset with the CPD using such a technology? Yeah, I mean, so there, there are a number of reasons. I think uh, one of which is that these the deployed uh, objects, these um, shot spotter devices are primarily based in the south and west side of Chicago in primarily black lower income neighborhoods. Um, these are, of course, neighborhoods that have been historically disinvested in, in Chicago. They are 
uh, always subject to observation and sometimes to violence from Chicago, the Chicago Police Department. Um, and using these sorts of uh, algorithmic devices in order to automate policing is uh, inherently an issue. Um, so I'm a, I, I have a, a data background in particular, one of my masters is in data analytics. Um, and the uh, use of surveillance tools uh, is, is just a major problem in literature at the moment that uh, is being explored. Um, in general, there are discriminatory outcomes in surveillance. The, as I mentioned before, the systems are disproportionately subjecting minorities to uh, these sorts of issues. Um, yeah, I think that's in a nutshell, really, why, why it's a problem, right? Uh, it's always our communities that are being watched. It's always our communities that are being harmed. Um, and they, I think uh, they, by which I mean the city in general, um, tend to identify our communities as, source, uh, as sources of problems. Um, we're not really seen as valuable human beings. We're constantly dehumanized um, and used really to extract profit. So we don't, when you use surveillance tools like ShotSpotter, I think black and brown people aren't, aren't seen as people, they're seen as disposable sources of income for tech companies. Um, there's a there's a phrase that comes up often in the literature, and it's if you're not paying for it, you're the product being sold. And at the end of the day, our our trauma, you know, us as individuals, that is the product being sold. Um, our data data is a, a a major resource for tech companies. It produces profit. Um, this logic of constantly getting more and more profit, it it is incentivizing these companies to deploy things like ShotSpotter and just make a make a buck, you know, off of the, the difficulties that we face in Chicago. And um, I'm not speaking of, of these issues from a, a place of uh, naivety. I'd, I'd like to think at least. Um, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up on the Southwest side in Gage Park. I was low income. Uh, my parents are um, immigrants from Mexico. I was a closeted non-binary kid. And, you know, we, I grew up with a bit of violence, um, a lot of violence, unfortunately, right? That's a lot of us. Uh, and these sorts of, um, the investment in these sorts of technologies is indicative of the city being unable to really question how resources are distributed, question how we can move towards a more liberated future, and instead really just tries to solve problems using uh, tools that they can purchase, right? It's like buying your way out of social inequity, and that's just not something that happens. Um, I think uh, in, the, in the data space, uh, there is a term called techno-solutionism or solutionism, um, and software developer and data journalist Meredith Broussard wrote this great book called Artificial Intelligence, where she uh, coined the term techno-chauvinism. And all of these words, they describe this false assumption that tech is always a solution to any issue you can have. Um, it, it's a feature of modern day uh, economic neoliberal processes that seek to privatize and automate all facets of life. And you might ask, why is this important? And I, I would say that immediately, I want to say immediately that data is a fundamentally socially constructed and non-objective object. Um, so it, uh, they, when we talk about surveillance, um, very pro-surveillance individuals like to say, oh, this is, you know, we're just, we're just working with data. We're just working with numbers. It's fully objective. Uh, uh, most people might believe machines know it all. Um, I'm here to tell you that that's not the case. And anyone, anyone that really tries to tell you otherwise is either a shitty scientist or they're just trying to sell you something. Um, the mantra of garbage data in and garbage out comes out is essentially and literally stats 101. Uh, so you need to, we need to pay attention to the sort of narratives and rhetoric that these companies are using to try to build profit. 
um, without actually critically assessing what they're doing. Jonathan, ShotSpotter will say 98% effectiveness in identifying gunshots <laughs> or something, some number around it. I know MacArthur did a study, MacArthur Justice Center did a study looking at their effectiveness in Chicago. What, what did that study say? Uh, Definitely not 98%. Um, so <laughs> I, I just I think I want to start just by um, uh, popping that myth that ShotSpotter keeps pumping out. So they say in their marketing materials, 97% accurate. Over and over again, they keep repeating this. Uh, it's not true. Um, it's like a fundamentally misleading figure. So let me explain how they get to that 97% number. Um, what they do uh, is so they send out these alerts to police departments they just assume that every one of those alerts was a gunshot. So they start at 100% accuracy. They're assuming 100% accuracy, not based on any testing, not based on any data or empirics, they just assume. And then they only count something as an error if the police department happens to send back a complaint about a particular shot. So if the police department voluntarily says, hey, shot spotter, we think you missed one, or this alert, you know, we don't think that was a gunshot. Um, they, that's the only time they will potentially count something as an error. So this is a tally of customer complaints. It's not an accuracy rate. Um, you know, it's, 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 and, and if you think about it, like if they were to send out like a thousand alerts to firecrackers and the police never complain, that's 100% accuracy according to their stats. It's nonsense, right? And, and the reason we know it's especially nonsense is because actually the folks at Lucy Parsons Labs, they got a document from... Uh, the, the city of Chicago, which showed that um, CPD sent zero complaints back to ShotSpotter about false alerts, right? They didn't send a single complaint to ShotSpotter that this alert you sent us wasn't a gunshot. Um, and that, that is, um, uh, that, 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 I mean, shows that, you know, that their data doesn't actually get to accuracy. So that 97% number is meaningless, okay? <laughs> Uh, what did we find um, on the ground? So what we did is we actually looked at um, data from, from the city, from the Office of Emergency Management and Communications, um, to see what do police officers find when they go and chase down a shot spotter alert, right? So officers get a shot spotter alert, they go to the location that shot spotter sent them, what do they record finding at that location? Um, and what we found was that about 90% of the time, uh, police officers record finding absolutely nothing involving any kind of uh, gun incident, right? So about one, only about one time in 10 do police officers record, record finding any kind of gun-related incident. That includes, um, you know, finding a shell casing. It includes finding someone who just says, you know, I, I saw somebody with a gun. It includes illegal possession. So this isn't just like shootings, you know, we're talking about any kind of gun incident that they find. Um, so, uh, one in 10 times, ShotSpotter leads police to find and record any kind of gun incident on the scene, right? So, um, so you could say the system is only 10% effective at leading police to find um, a gun incident, right? <laughs> um, the, the true accuracy rate, like how many of these alerts are actually gunshots, the only way to get at that would be to do an actual test, you know, to test the system against fireworks against cars backfiring, against nail guns, against all these other sounds that sound like guns and to see how easily it's fooled. Um, here's the crazy thing about ShotSpotter. It's been around 20 years. They've never done that testing, 
they've never done a test to see how um, readily the system gets triggered and fooled by these confounding noises like uh, firecrackers and, and, and stuff like that. So, um, so what we do know, though, is that in Chicago, um, ShotSpotter uh, leads police to find no evidence of any gun incident uh, about nine times out of 10. I was reading your study and, and looking at all the shots spotters back and forth around the country, in Chicago and around the country. And I did a ride along in Austin on a Saturday night late. And we were on a, in a special car because they wanted to show us the real meats of what was going on. So we went to all the shootings, reports of shootings. And I can't tell you how many times in those four or five hours on the street, we got there and there was nothing right? It's all dark. No one's answering the phone. The shooter's not there. If there was a victim, they're not there. And whoever called 911 isn't responding, right? So, I, and this is what I've talked about, I think about with um, journalists who now tally shootings over the radio. How are they doing that? And when the cops say on the radio, this is, this is a confirmed shooting, what are they using, right? Because I'm sure there are times that there are shootings, the, but it, the, there's a shooting, the victim, it, does, it doesn't get shot and takes off. The victim takes, the shooter takes off. And the person, people who call 911 are like, I called the cops, but now I want no part of this. And how do you, how do you categorize that? Now, is it just someone on the street says, yeah, there was a shooting. I heard a noise that I think was a shooting. It's a shooting. How does that get recorded? And I caution anyone who thinks the CPD has strict policies on anything to read the inspector general's reports. They don't have strict policies on anything. They can't tell nothing. Talking about data in, garbage data in and out, garbage data in, garbage data out. They are the epitome of garbage data. So, um, which is why I even find it more infuriating that the press who should know that there's garbage data from the CPD. Let's Superintendent Brown get up there and say, we're getting, and it might be true to some extent, but they can't prove it. Where there is a shooting, they might be getting there a minute or two quicker um, because they don't have to wait for a 911 call. That's a possibility. But they, they ought to be able to document that. They ought to be able to keep data on that and know, and we're helping victims on the street. Okay, that's a possibility, but you have 1.7 billion. Can you please tell us how many of that times that's happened? Because um, I know I've had cops tell me, you know, first of all, the idea that whether someone lives or dies after a gunshot is fired is up to the cops or somehow on the cops is a joke, right? A cop would tell me, well, did the person call with the right address? When they call on, they give the right address. Um, when did the, the paramedics not get lost on the way to the person? Did they find the person, get there, and did they go to the right facility? Or did they get lost and go to the hospital? Oh, it's like all these things affect whether someone lives or dies. Anyways, I just, this murkiness, like I think when the media talking about ShotSpotter, they're giving credit to the CPD on whole levels of things they haven't earned. And they're totally incapable of doing. Mm -hmm. um, so when I, anytime they tell me this technology works, you were doing this, I'm like, oh, no, no, <laughs> no way. That's a lie. Anyways, so that's just my ramble about it. Um, <laughs> Um, so, yeah, and I mean, to, to really um, push even more into the points that Jonathan raised, I mean, uh, and really uh, the, the points you brought up as well, Tracy, like the, 
the idea of saying that a machine learning or an algorithmic system is 97% accurate is just, it's ridiculous. Um, no one in, uh, no one that does machine learning only repre uh, represents the efficacy of their model down to one accuracy number. Um, that's, if you see that, they're probably, again, trying to sell you something. Um, I think it was in 2016, there was a shot spotter engineer that was testifying during a court case and actually said that this 97% accuracy rating was one developed by their, P, uh, by their um, a PR team and marketing team to sell the product. Um, apart from that, that sounds good. You got to admit it's it, a great it sounds good, line. right? Yeah, yeah. It's but you know, like what Jonathan, <laughs> just as Jonathan said, right? Like you know, let's say you were making a, a system that's supposed to identify whether or not a animal is a dog, and you have one dog and I don't know a million cats that it can look at. If you say every one of those animals is a dog, then you've one hundred. You've accurately identified one hundred percent of the dogs but you've also misidentified 100% of the cats, right? And so it's important to build more nuance into the way that we look at these sorts of values because they're really just manipulating numbers in order to get people to buy things or to sound more credible. Um, and you know, there's also this point, right? This point about bad data. And I think there is a, a deeper level we can go into because it's not, just, it's not just a problem that'll be fixed if you get better data. Uh, the idea of better data is one that's very um, ambiguous, uh, perhaps maybe even non-existent. In a recent paper called Team Infrastructure, Race, Facial Recognition, and the Politics of Data, scholars Nikki Stevens and Os Keys wrote about this criticism of biased data sets and pointed to this deeper issue. So I'm going to quote this right here. I have it in some notes. But they say the data sets themselves are not so much biased as they are reflective of their sites of use. There is no simple story of mis- or underrepresentation leading to bias. It is the logics and systems of inequality that lead to the data set's purposes and so naturalize the data set's demographic skews. If the data sets that underrepresent people of color are being used to train models for policing, border control, and other forms of state control and violence, an improved model will only provide greater accuracy for law enforcement agencies. If they're only being used to train systems for surveillance capitalism, then efforts to increase representation are merely efforts to increase the ability of commercial entities to exploit, track, and control people of color. Uh, so this is really an issue of the autonomy of our communities um, being completely undercut. And really, we're just looked at as, again, sources of income for rich, wealthy tech companies that aren't even based in Chicago, right? They have no real strict stake in our issues, but they have a, a lot of stake in their uh, how much money they make off of our issues. And so off of that, I'm gonna go back to Jonathan because you yeah. just brought this up. Um, Alejandro, does, does ShotSpotter, is there any benefit to ShotSpotter to the communities that we can, that you all can determine to the policing, to anything in Chicago? Uh, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I mean, like you say, there's no data showing, um, that it's effective at the things that, um, you know, this tech solution is supposed to magically fix, right? Like, like Ada was saying, so, you know, does it reduce, um, shootings or, uh, uh, zero evidence of that? Um, there's actually been studies in other cities that found no evidence, no, no reduction in violent crimes. Um, does it increase the number of arrests for gun incidents? It, uh, you know, even if you think we can like somehow arrest our way out of um, gun violence problems, um, which uh, uh, you know I'd argue is sort of a failed strategy, and, and you know we shouldn't be sending ever more people into prison. But even if you thought that that we could do that, 
there's no evidence that it increases the number of arrests for um, for for gun crimes. There was a study out of uh, St. Louis actually that found that relying on 911 calls to track down shootings was, um, by their calculation, seven and a half times more efficient. Now, how they arrived at that number, I'm sure you can quibble with the stats, but but basically, um, there's. I, I don't see any evidence that it's helping reduce gun crimes. In terms of this question about, um, you know, the, the talking point we hear now is that ShotSpotter saves lives. You know, it gets police officers to the scene of a shooting um, faster. So again, like, like you said, Tracy, um, <laughs> a police department with a $1.9 billion budget should be able to, you know, at least tell us how many people's lives they think are saved and maybe tell us a little bit about those cases instead of just, I mean, just, saying it um it's it's very strange um but there, there's actually there was there was one um attempt to systematically study this i think it was in trenton or camden new jersey um and that was that was published in a, in a in a peer-reviewed journal and what that study found was that there was a small reduction in the time that uh it took to get a person to the hospital but there was actually zero impact on uh, mortality it didn't yep. people did not um, survive more in shot spotter areas from sh from shootings than in non-shot spotter areas. And actually there was a, oddly enough, this was a, a peer-reviewed article, but there was a response to that journal study that criticized its methods even on calculating the time to hospital. It was sort of a back and forth. So um, yeah, so I mean, I, it's, it's hard to say that it has any benefit because there's so little data. And just to, to pick up on your point about garbage data that CPD keeps, um, you know, there are costs on the other side of the ledger here. So, for example, if ShotSpotter is leading to a lot of unwarranted stop and frisks, you know, situations where police are stopping people, um, uh, creating like a, you know, hostile encounter with a member of the public, um, uh, that is something that uh, people should be interested in. I think the police department purports to, you know, care about uh, reducing unwarranted stop and, stop and frisks. Um, the inspector general tried to look at that, tried to look at how many uh, shot spotter alerts led to stop and frisks. And the inspector general said, you know, well, we found a couple thousand, but we're pretty sure there's a lot more, but the record keeping is so bad that we can't match up stop and frisks to shot spotter alerts. We can't even, the police department doesn't even know how many shot spotter alerts are leading to yep. um, people being stopped and patted down for guns. So. You know, that's that's the quality of data that the police department is working with, right? Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's remarkable to me that the city spends almost 10 million bucks a year on this contract, but is not, not doing anything to see whether it's, it's worth the money. You know, they really haven't done anything. And that works at 10, oh, I'm sorry, go on, Tracy. No, I'm gonna say, this is very much, I brought it up earlier, this is very much like ceasefire, right? When ceasefire started, they got funding, they do a lot of community outreach and a lot of PR. And the representative that's got that money says, look, it's working. It's doing great. All of these things. Not ever caring whether it worked, just that shot, that ceasefire was able to advertise that it worked. So they were able to, the, the state rep was able to get clout and political points for that. So then other state reps wanted it, not caring if it worked, just knowing that the PR around having it was going to be beneficial to them. And to some extent, I think that shot spotter here in Chicago. Lifefoot wants to say we're doing everything we can. The CPD is saying we're doing everything we can. See, we got this big technology. We're using all the technology, all the money. Um, so I think that's part of it. The other part, I, I want to bring this up, and I think, Andre, you're free to 
go at it first. You know, Ken Fox, and we there's issues with their data too, but she pretty well documented from there was a switch at the beginning of 2014 when the CPD stopped making arrests for gun for crimes related to gun shootings, someone shooting a gun, whether it was an armed robbery, attempted murder, murder. Those arrests and clearances plummeted. But what skyrocketed at that point was gun possession arrests. And they switched the mentality where if they just arrest everyone with a gun, that'll reduce violence. And I've had cops since back, you know, talk to me about the, the benefits of that prerogative. And I just think it's mind-bogglingly stupid. Um, but it, hearing you talk, Jonathan and Alejandro, it made me think like maybe part of what's going on is this is, ShotSpotter is giving them ample legal justification mm-hmm. to get to greatly increase stops around where these shooting alerts are coming through. Definitely. And leading to gun possession arrests. Not quality arrests, we would think, for all the money they're spending, but they think they need cause to get in as many people's spaces and search as many people as possible. So I, I don't know, I guess I, I'll ask, what do you think about, Alejandro, you can start, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm, pro- I'm going to bring up some examples that Jonathan can speak to probably far better than I, but there, there, we, we've seen things go really wrong with the shots fired appointments here in Chicago, right? We've seen that um, Adam Toledo was murdered by the Chicago Police Department on a shot spotter deployment uh, while they were going on a foot chase that they shouldn't have been going on to begin with. We've seen um, Mr. Michael Williams get or falsely arrested for uh, issues that ar- also arose from shot spotter deployments. And I think, uh, you know, you, Tracy, and Jonathan have spoken a lot to how the city or the police department like to say, well, if we have this tool, we can maybe save one life, right? Like some sort of uh, imaginary life that they have in mind that they're, they're saving. But what about these people who have been harmed, right? There's no Hippocratic oath in this, uh, in this sort of field that says do no harm. What happens when, should we, should we be investing in a system uh, that hasn't even just harmed one person, but multiple people? Um, and I really just wanna ask, right? Like. Aren't aren't these people who have been harmed by shot spotter appointments? Aren't they people too? Shouldn't they count too? Why doesn't why does the city not take seriously this issue that their technology hurts people and has hurt people? Um, they're always so focused on saving again this one imaginary life, but it's harmed it's harmed lives. We know it's harmed lives. We have evidence of that, um, and that's not taken seriously, right? Because they don't care about harming people. They uh, care about keeping this uh, technology in place and avoiding uh, any sort of criticism, I would say. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Jonathan, uh, please, uh, your thoughts. And also maybe you can expand on some of the things I mentioned. Yeah, for, for, for sure. So, um, you know, you're absolutely right um, that ShotSpotter has um, led to these terrible situations. Um, and I mean, b- b- bigger picture, I mean, in, in the I mean, to start with the, the stop and frisk issue um, and, yep. and trying to recover guns, I mean, what we know from the inspector general is that um, uh, there, over the course of, uh, I believe it was a year and a half, there was uh, thousands of stop and frisks that they could identify that were prompted by shot spotter alerts. Um, so that is happening. And then actually even more troubling is the, the um, inspector general just examined a random sample of like 70 or so 
um, stop and frisks, and in about one in five of those, uh, stop and frisk that mentioned shot spotter, and in, and in about one in five of those, what the inspector general found was that police officers were justifying the stop, not because there was actually a shot spotter alert that they were investigating, but because the person that they stopped was walking in an area that had previously had lots of shot spotter alerts. So this is like a high shot spotter neighborhood, and that's reason for just to stop somebody. So if I'm walking around, you know, on the west side in an area where apparently shot spotter has supposedly had lots of alerts in the past, that apparently is justification for the police to stop me um, and uh, 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 pat me down and uh, put me in fear for my life. Frankly, I mean, I've yeah. talked to folks who've been um, uh, stopped by police responding to a shot spotter alert. And it's it's scary. Uh, I've, one person I spoke to said they were quote scared shitless because the police officers are coming into that situation, um, believing that the person they're encountering just fired a gun, mm -hmm. or is armed, is dangerous, um, suspecting them, and the person who's on you know who's being stopped, uh, you know, seeing a cop coming up to them with like you know hand on their service weapon or maybe the I mean in one case I think the gun was even unholstered. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a terrifying situation, right? Um, those are the kinds of police encounters that I think all of us want to avoid. Um, so uh, unless, unless they're like absolutely necessary, you know? Yeah. So the fact that ShotSpotter seems to be providing like this technological uh, bogus justification for cops to stop people in areas that are supposedly quote high ShotSpotter areas is a real problem. Also, I'll mention this before, but just to make it clear, ShotSpotter is only on the south side and the west side. Yep. So nobody's getting stopped on the north side um, because they're in a high ShotSpotter neighborhood because there's no ShotSpotter on the north side. So um, yeah, I think I think you're in, there's there's definitely something to your intuition, Tracy, that ShotSpotter may be um, a sort of technology that creates a justification for this kind of um, police tactic. Yeah, and you know, just to even push that point home more, you know, further even. Um, it is, these aren't just algorithmic tools that are being used to uh, label individuals uh, as, I guess as criminals based on their own definitions. Um, it's not just that, right? Like that's bad enough as is. We've seen that happen with a lot of algorithmic missteps like the compass algorithm that tried to predict recidivism rates and things like that. Um, what's also being done here is that by well, first of all, by, by either sending a deployment or using the, the fact that ShotSpotter goes off a lot in an area, as Jonathan suggested, it doesn't criminalize just the individual. It criminalizes the entire community because it can't tell you anything other than, oh, you know, we heard a sound, so deploy police here. And it makes it so that uh, the police department deploys cops to come over to neighborhoods and anyone in the vicinity is suddenly a target for them, right? It, it makes it so that the entire region isn't seen as a community, but it, it's seen as, uh, as a, a site of crime or it's seen as a, a, a problem in Chicago, further dehumanizing individuals, further dehumanizing the places we live, uh, you know, work and sleep in. Um, so there's, a, there's this multi, there's this other level, right? It's not just, uh, it's not just saying, hey, this person shot a gun. It's not saying that at all, really. It's saying, hey, I heard a noise here. Maybe this entire region is filled with people who are dangerous. And that's bullshit. It's not true. And so you have people coming in ready, guns drawn, uh, at worst, um, looking for something or looking for a fight. Yeah, I mean, and the more that we're talking about this, I'm, I think it's mostly a probable cause generator. 
Yeah. Right. It's giving them probable cause to do things they want to do. And, you know, there's this, uh, I forgot his name. He wrote a really bad book on the culture of policing. Really bad book. But in the book, he had this one phrase about community policing. The guy was at Florida A&P University. But anyways, I had to read it in grad school. One line he wrote, which I was really good about community policing. And he said, community policing is nothing more than the cops getting a warrant from the community for, to do things they were going to do anyways. Right? And I think the more we have this talk, the more I think in ShotSpotter is just strictly a probable cause generator. And it probably helps them dramatically give them cause to do these searches and then come up with gun possession arrests. Um, for people, they wouldn't ordinarily be able to legally justify a stop otherwise. Especially if you're talking, there's a lot of shot spotter alerts. Um, I remember I have a friend, you know, I have friends on the force and one of my cop buddies said he was at this place where there was a shooting three weeks ago as a Dunkin' Donuts or coffee shop. And some guy was there who happened to be black and he was standing out front and so he stopped him and he found a gun on him. And I'm like, okay, what did you stop him for? He goes, well, I had justification because there was a shooting there three weeks ago. I'm like, no, you don't. No, 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 no. There's no temporal connection to those two at all. Standing out front where you know absolutely there was a shooting and someone was shot, we could argue about who you'd be able to search. Three weeks later, there's no goddamn way. This is the same thing, except they're constantly probably getting these alerts. And yep. the reason that the police are not the reason, I mean, a good question to get to Brown is why aren't you reporting false alarms? The reality is they don't want to report false alarms because those false alarms are giving them the credence to go into that community and search any males, especially, but I'm sure everyone, but any male, especially of color of a certain age, they can just go pat them down. Oh. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that's, that's exactly right. And um, the, you know, we've actually argued in a legal brief we filed in Massachusetts that a shot spot alert should not um, give the police grounds to stop somebody because, um, you know, ShotSpotter hasn't been uh, validated, right? Uh, that there, there's not enough evidence that it's actually triggered by gunshots as opposed to other loud noises, um, such that police can rely on it um, uh, to, to do a stop. Um, also, because ShotSpotter doesn't tell you anything about which particular person might be a, a proper suspect. All it tells you is that at best, there was a gunshot, you know, within a certain radius of this area, right? The cops show up several minutes later. You know, it's a different scene, right? So, like, does it's it's uh, does that uh, does that is there justification in that circumstance for 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 a stop? You know, th there's one case actually um, from the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals that covers Illinois, that analogized shot spotter to like a an anonymous tip. It's the kind of thing that like you can listen to it, but you can't stop someone unless you have corroboration, like other evidence. Um, that corroborates that there was a gunshot and that this or that there, this person that you're focusing on may may be armed, um, may have committed a crime, et cetera. So, um, but it seems like based on what the inspector general is finding is that the CPD is just, uh, they're not following that rule. Um, their view is that they can stop people just because they happen to be in an area where there were shot spotter alerts, um, I don't know, days or weeks ago. So, yeah. so yeah. the CPD is, I will do it. I'm going to do it first and apologize later. That's their mantra. Yeah, and absolutely. And, th and there's very few checks on this stuff, right? So, 
um, you know, if there's if there's an arrest, then you know the public defender might try to um, you know suppress the evidence or, or toss the case. Uh, but many of these cases are there's no there's no arrest, and then what are you going to do? You're going to sue, and then you run into all these um, immunities that the police enjoy, qualified immunity and other. So it's it's the courts are actually not a very certain check on this kind of abuse. Um, so uh, it's it's a tricky a tricky situation. I, I should say that my understanding um, I'm not a public defender. I don't work in that office. But my understanding is that um, in a number of cases where shot spotter evidence has been um, uh, uh, used by the prosecution or where the prosecution is relying on shot spotter evidence. Um, they will make the case go away rather than allow a judge to examine the reliability of the system. Um, and the most um, uh, shocking, I think, example of this um, in Chicago is uh, a man named Michael Williams, who Ala mentioned, who was accused of murder. Um, the core evidence against him was a shot spotter alert. Um, and the public defender uh, and he he uh, professed his innocence. Um, you know the the he he maintained his innocence throughout, and um, the uh, he sat in jail for eleven months, and the core evidence against him was a shot spot alert. And the public defender um, went into court and said, "You can't use this shot spotter evidence in front of a jury because it's not reliable. It's not scientifically acceptable." We actually came into court um, on behalf of Lucy Parsons Labs and some others and said to the judge, look at this evidence from Chicago. Nine times out of 10, it leads police to find nothing. Um, and after, only after those motions were filed, um, <laughs> the state's attorney uh, uh, decided, oh, you know what? We're going to drop this shot spotter evidence. We're not going to use it. And actually, we don't have a case against this guy. Uh, so we're going to drop the charges. So they, this this person, Michael Williams, he sat in jail for 11 months, an innocent man, because of shot spotter, um, and it was only because the public defender was um, on the ball and able to mount a sophisticated challenge to the reliability of the evidence that um, you know he's he, he's not facing um, facing those those charges. So uh, you know. <laughs> it's 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 a, it's what one way to think about it is it's quite remarkable that even in a murder case, the state's attorney's office is not willing to go to bat for this this the system and its reliability. This aggressive prosecutor, how about you force the police department to validate it for every case? How about say have your lawyer prosecutor say, listen, we're not taking shot spotter evidence unless you can prove it works, right? How about that? Um, because this is you know. Prosecutors were complicit in Burge. That's obviously been proven uh, by your friend. I know uh, John, uh, your friend, Conroy. Mine, Jack Conroy. Sure. Um, and the prosecutors were definitely uh, part and parcel of what happened there. And this is another area where, all right, you maybe as a single prosecutor, you don't know, but you don't run it up the chain of command. Where's Kim Fox in this? This thing ain't tested. This ain't proven. You're just taking garbage evidence all the time, regularly. And it's probably happening all the time in the office, because you can imagine how many of those alerts they're getting and how many people they're stopping, even if it's on drugs or, or gun possession, whatever it is, it's got to be happening regularly on the south. Yeah, my, my understanding is there's a steady stream of people who end up in custody because the cops were chasing down a shot spot alert and found someone, um, you know, who they could charge with something, 
you know, not not a shooting, but like something else, either gun possession or something else. I mean, if you look in the data, there's people who are arrested on drug charges following a shot spot alert. People, I mean, there's some of these really suspicious charges like um, uh, um, obstructing uh, a police officer. You know, you look at that and you're like, wait, so there's a shot spot alert and then somebody is uh, written up for obstructing a police officer. Like, what happened there? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a really uh, strange situation. So, um, Probably where they punched the guy, right? And they needed to arrest him on something. Oh, what yeah. Are, what's that, okay, uh, we haven't used obstruction in a while. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's pretty common that when, when there's a, um, uh, you know, like a violent encounter between a member of the public and police, the, the, the police will call it obstruction and, and charge the person. Um, yeah. And, you know, actually, oh, no, I mean, what I wanted to say is you have to wonder, right? Like the, the city is hemorrhaging so much public money into these devices. Did anyone even, even think to ask, does this work? Right? How many uh, contracts does the city have that they were sold or they bought into because some grifter came up with nice numbers, right? This is just one that we're talking about, but um, this, is, this is a huge issue. There was no public insight into these contracts being formed. Uh, the city and CPD and ShotSpotter itself have made it very difficult to penetrate into the systems and really critique them. Um, there's a professor over at SFU call, uh, named Sunha Hong who uh, relates surveillance systems as something that he calls recessive objects, which are these objects or artifacts that promise to extend our knowledge, but they're simultaneously very obfuscated and very uh, difficult for the public and sometimes even engineers who design them themselves have any transparency into. Um, so ShotSpotter, for example, uses what's called a deep neural network in order to make its decisions. And if you've done any machine learning before, you'll know that um, while deep neural networks are very fascinating, they're also notoriously difficult to interpret. So I, I highly doubt anyone on their team has any idea what their machine's even deciding. Um, there's really no way to look into that because the processes are black boxes, right? They take in data, they spit something else out afterwards. You don't really know what happens in the middle. Um, yeah. According to Vice News, if the cops call, they can get something changed, yeah. <laughs> right? Vice yeah. News did a thing on ShotSpotter and caught them, the, the ShotSpotter people testifying that they changed things because the cops called. They're like, well, we didn't do it just because of that. We had a human listen to it and we reevaluated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and ShotSpotter <laughs> tried suing uh, Vice after that article yes. as well. Yeah, trying to, we, you know. Do we know the, the status of that lawsuit? Is it still going? I'm not sure if it just got dumped out right away. It's it's still going. My understanding is that Vice is moving to dismiss that lawsuit. Um, yeah. Right now, it's it's working its way through. Oh God. All right. So last question for I'd like to have both of you comment. We'll start with Alejandro. So the CPD goes ahead, pretty much ahead of schedule, and um, amidst all the fervor over ShotSpotter, and renews the contract for two more years. Right, ten million plus a year, I think, if I'm not mistaken, eleven million a year, something like that for the next two years, months before the original contract was running out. What are your final thoughts on that move by the city and the CPD that would do that the way they did it? The history of inadequacy that continues, I think, is my thought initially. Um, and I think it's it's also important to name that ShotSpotter is not the only company that does this. There's a lot of surveillance companies that were uh, keeping our eyes on that try to grift you know, these cities into buying their products. Um, and I think in general, what we're interested in is looking at this broader question of surveillance and ShotSpotter is just a, a small part of it, but really there are all of these market forces that 
uh, produce that incentivize these companies to keep producing bullshit systems and selling to the police um, and putting, you know, innocent people in harm's way, really just anyone in harm's way. It, it doesn't matter who the person is. It's creating harm. Um, and we're just not going to stop fighting the city on that because it's not okay. It's not okay that this is happening. Um, there's a, I think, you know, we might think of this technology as new because it uses computers, but surveillance is, it's been here forever. This isn't new. It's a continuation of what's already been here. It's a continuation of, uh, you know, security guards and police officers following you around in a convenience store because you're a person of color. It's a continuation of the cops giving you dirty looks at, you know, on the corner of your block. Um, and just because there are computers involved doesn't mean it's any better. It just means that the, the people who use these tools are getting better at avoiding criticism. That's all it really is. Yeah, Jonathan, I don't know what your thoughts are. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so here, here I, my uh, computer went on mute there. Um, so I, I think that um, it was pretty remarkable what happened here in the city. So uh, the, we, we published our report, I think it was April or May, and at that point, we thought the contract was up in August. So the whole discussion was, should the city renew this contract? Mary Lightfoot was actually asked about this at a press conference. A reporter asked her, what do you think about this contract? And she says something like, you know, we review all of our contracts carefully to make sure we're getting value for money and that it's effective, um, suggesting that the contract hadn't been extended yet. Then fast forward a couple of months, I think it's July, and uh, a reporter at CityCast Chicago discovers that uh, actually, this contract was extended back in December. So unbeknownst to the mayor um, uh, and ev everyone else that we talked to, the contract was actually um, was actually extended without any comment, without any public input, months months earlier. And uh, you know, there was recently a city council hearing about ShotSpotter, and uh, the folks from the Office of Public Safety Administration, which is sort of the body that now administers CPD contracts. It's a new agency that was created under uh, Mayor Emanuel. It, it's the one that actually administers this contract. Um, and they, they really had no explanation for why they extended it without any comment. They were basically like, well, the police department said they, um, I guess, wanted to keep it and we could extend it for two years. So we did. And that was that. Um, so it's really quite remarkable that the city will re-up a contract that, like you say, it's $9 million a year, um, plus, of course, all the time that officers spent chasing down these alerts without any kind of review. You know, there was no review for effectiveness. The first time there was any stats about whether the system was um, effective was when we published our study. You know, that, we, we put it on the table by publishing our study. Um, and uh, we still don't have any stats from the, the mayor's office or from the CPD. Mm -hmm. The inspector general followed up, basically confirmed our findings and found uh, these you know, really troubling connections to stop and frisk. Um, and yet, you know, now here we are, it's, it's almost a year later. Um, there's still no data from the city about whether the system is worthwhile, but they did extend the contract um, through 2023. I should say um, the contract can be canceled at any time. So yep. the city, if they choose, if the city council decides that they um, don't want to fund this, um, or if the mayor or the CPD decide that they don't want to use the technology anymore, they can cancel the contract at any time. There's no penalty to the city. They just stop paying. Um, the service gets switched off. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And something I'll add to is just that, like, I think uh, 
I think it's important to name that you do not have to be a software developer, a statistician, an engineer, or whatever, to criticize these systems. At the end of the day, any individual here can see that, you know, this is a this is a bullshit piece of technology that's used to harm people. And I think the important question uh, shouldn't, you know, the important question shouldn't be shouldn't just be boiled down to quantitative metrics. The important question is. Do these algorithms and the people who make them, are they making the world better or are they, make, are they making them worse? And I think many of us here um, are, are readily able to say that companies like ShotSpotter are making it worse for us. They're making our lives worse. All right, we're gonna leave it there. Alejandro Ruiz Esparza and Jonathan Manis, thank you so much for taking the time to jump on the pod. I really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for your time. I want to thank Jonathan and Alejandro for sitting down with us to discuss this important topic. Clearly, the CPD is dedicated to using the technology, even though they seem incapable of proving that it actually helps them in their work. Remember, $1.7 billion budget, now a little over $1.9 billion budget, and then they, uh, and they can't bring data to the table to prove things like the judges are giving bad sentences and people are getting out to early bail reform stinks. And here a shot spotter actually helps us. We know you just have to trust us. How very Trumpian. When you think about how we get to Trump land and the Trumpian part of this country, you understand that there's these people in government, well, in public, but in government too, that are just acting very similar. Just trust us. We don't have to bring data to the table. How can a $1.7 billion agency, you can't bring data to the table it really, it really just uh, boggles the mind. One note quick about the Adam Toledo shooting. I know it was discussed here. I don't find it to be accurate to use the Adam Toledo shooting an example of shot spotter technology not working. There were eight shots fired at a car from a person Adam was with, it is believed. And it seems that Adam did have the weapon in his hand when the police arrived. While we don't like the outcome of the incident saying, oh, while we don't like the outcome of the incident, saying it was caused by ShotSpotter is just not correct. The technology has lots of problems. This incident just isn't one of them. So next week, we'll be back with a conversation with 32nd Ward Alderman Scott Wagaspak about the sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape scandal at the Chicago Park District and the political response to Dan Milahopoulos's great reporting from WBEZ. If you have not read it, you should go to BEZ and read all of Dan's reporting and listen to it. It is amazing. I refine the Chicago media a lot about these issues, especially reporting on crime and violence. But man, Dan knocked it out of the park. Dan's one of the best in the city for sure. I'll be back with you next week. Stay safe.